mitochondria are actually engulfed bacteria. The bacteria said, look, if you let me stay here and give me something to eat, I'll pay you in the form of making ATP. So the vast majority of people who try to get into ketosis fall flat on their faces because they can't get to the fat cell. Most of us are tired of fatigue because so much of our energy is being diverted to inflammation. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Friends, this episode is so surreal for me. I have been a fan of Dr. Stephen Gundry for years, years, I tell you. The plant paradox is a legend in the holistic health world. Lectins, lectins, we know about lectins because of Dr. Stephen Gundry. Since then, I've read all of his other paradox books. And so obviously when his publishers reached out to me about his newest book, The Energy Paradox, I was absolutely thrilled in such awe and very excited, and I didn't even know at the time what his thesis was going to be in The Energy Paradox. That book really, really delivered. I'd really been wanting to understand mitochondria for so long. It was sort of on my to-do list, try to understand the mitochondria. So I was obviously thrilled that this book completely delivered. And then the ensuing conversation with Dr. Gundry was so incredible. Friends, I think you will really, really enjoy it. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash energy paradox. Those show notes will have a complete transcript, so definitely check that out. There will also be two episode giveaways for this episode. One is in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something I love. Then you can also check out my Instagram for another giveaway. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Dr. Stephen Gundry. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly thrilled and excited about the conversation that I am about to have. It is a long, long time coming. So I'm going to tell a little bit of my personal story to um, give some context for today's conversation. So I've been, as you guys know, involved in the whole health diet sphere for a long time. And a long time ago, before the whole carnivore diet or anything like that was a thing, I had a little discovery where I realized if I cut all plants out of my diet and just ate chicken and coconut oil, um, <laughs> I experienced a lot of health benefits. I had a growing suspicion of plants. That said, that was not maintainable in the long term. And I got a more nuanced opinion of plants as I ultimately brought them back in. Needless to say, I was at a really good place to receive a concept known as the plant paradox that became very, very popular a while ago by the fabulous Dr. Stephen Gundry. And it really, really tapped into what I had been suspicious of for a long time, that there was potentially compounds and plants that may or may not be causing a lot of health issues for a lot of people. Since then, I even developed a 
top iTunes app for people with food sensitivities, which includes lectins, which Dr. Gundry talked about. So that enough would make me ridiculously excited to talk to this man. But on top of that, he just released a new book called The Energy Paradox, What to Do When Your Get Up and Go Has Got Up and Gone. And friends, oh my goodness, words cannot describe how excited this book made me. It basically takes the concept of something that a lot of us experience all the time, and that's this idea of chronic fatigue. And often the idea of fatigue even in the holistic health world, it's kind of seen as a symptom or something that goes along with some other underlying health condition. It's rarely addressed as the source condition. And by that, we'll go into the science of all of that in this episode, but basically fatigue as something in and of itself, as it involves the mitochondria, the gut microbiome, so many things. I was thrilled to read The Energy Paradox. I'm so excited that I get to talk about it now and ask all my crazy questions. So Dr. Gundry, thank you so much for being here. Melanie, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And thanks for the nice introduction. I'm just, I'm really, really looking forward to this conversation. My listeners are probably super, super familiar with you, but for those who are not, I will let them know that you are one of the world's top cardiothoracic surgeons, a pioneer in nutrition. You're the medical director at the International Heart and Lung Institute Center for Restorative Medicine, and you're a New York Times bestseller. I mentioned some of the books already, but The Plant Paradox, The Longevity Paradox, which I also read and it was incredible, and now The Energy Paradox. So all of that said, <laughs> to start things off, so I already mentioned this already, but this idea of chronic fatigue that so many of us struggle with on a daily basis as a part of our lives, I'm super curious because you really posit a really interesting concept in the book that the root source is in the mitochondria of our bodies. Did you have an epiphany one day about that? Or was it something that you came over the years to discover? Like, What led you to this thesis that you have right now about fatigue and the mitochondria? Each of my books, I don't, I don't write a book just to write a book. And, you know, oh, you, you have a deadline to write your next book. This book actually came about, as I talked about in the inter introduction, from a an episode with a young woman basically not being able to show up for a taping that we were going to do for public television. And she actually called in and said she didn't have it in her to come to the studio today to do the taping. And we got things cobbled together and we did the taping without her. But the, the idea that a millennial just didn't have it in her kind of you know, resonated with me for, for many days. And I, I thought back, I've been, I've been doing practicing restorative medicine for over 21 years now. Some people like to call it functional medicine, but that's restorative medicine, I, I think sounds better. But when I first started, half the people I would see we would have a diagnosis of fatigue and malaise. That's an ICD-9 code. And so half the people I saw were for you know, fatigue. And as my practice evolved, about 70 to 80% of my practice is autoimmune diseases. And invariably, one of the 
complaints for almost everyone with an autoimmune disease is tiredness or fatigue. And one of the consequences of getting rid of the autoimmune disease is that people's tiredness and fatigue went away. And so I guess I put two and two together. And I said, you know, I, I, I've never talked about this. I've never written about this, but I've, I'm an energy doctor. And I think it's time to tell people what are the underlying factors that show up as fatigue, chronic fatigue, tiredness, just not having, you know, get up and go. So that's what prompted the book. Yeah. And speaking to that, you talk about some of the different myths that surround fatigue. And this blew my mind because a lot of people think that they have adrenal fatigue or that their cortisol is all out of whack. And you talk about how in your patients, what do you find with cortisol levels? So I suppose out of 10,000 patients I've seen over the last 20 years, I've maybe seen five people with low cortisol levels. Similarly, I do see people with elevated cortisol levels, but that's by far the exception rather than the rule. And one of the things I talk about in the book is that, interestingly, a lot of people are beginning to realize or understand the concept of insulin resistance, where uh, cells become resistant to the action of insulin delivering sugars and proteins through the wall of the cell. And that's, you know, if you want to call it prediabetes, that's fine. But what's interesting that I talk about in the book is no one talks about having adrenal resistance. And that is the adrenal glands are perfectly normal, but the receptors for the adrenal hormones like cortisol, like adrenaline, just to bring a couple to mind, are being blocked by various substances. And so you actually develop a resistance to the action of the adrenal hormones. And so what I've found, in, certainly in my practice, is that this is not adrenal fatigue, just the opposite. You've been you know, blasting out so many adrenal hormones through the years that you're cells, your receptors have built up a callus to, you know, block the effects of that. And, you know, I see people spending literally thousands of dollars on adrenal supplements when that's not the problem. It's, let's just call a spade a spade. 90% of type 2 diabetics don't have a problem making insulin. They make too much insulin. So you don't treat a diabetic by giving them insulin. That only makes the matter worse. And yet we see so many people who have been told they have you know, adrenal fatigue who we try to get their adrenals to make more adrenal hormones, and that's not the problem. You have to get the cells to listen to the adrenal hormones in the first place. Wow. I think that's already going to help people breathe a sigh of relief because, I mean, it's still a problem, obviously, having this resistance and not correctly reading the hormone, but I think it's a lot more approachable. The idea of fatigue, that your glands are just not producing it or that it's not there is very overwhelming. So the idea that there are these hormones, but we're just not reading them correctly, I mean, that I find that a lot more hopeful. 
<laughs> for making change. So going to this idea of this fatigue, it's ironic because, and you talk about this in the book, but you know we live in a state of seemingly ample access to energy. I mean, we have plethora of food, we take in a lot of energy, but we experience fatigue still. And you talk about how, I mean, this is so interesting that it actually still is abundance of energy aside, a cellular energy crisis because the cells are not getting the energy they need. So I was wondering if we could dive a little deeper into that about what is actually going on. I guess a foundational question to start with is how do we generate energy just in general? (laughs) So in general, most of our energy currency is ATP, adenosine triphosphate, and it's literally the currency that we spend. And for most of us, most of our ATP production is complements of our mitochondria. And the mitochondria story is is marvelously interesting in that we're pretty sure now that two billion years ago, bacteria were swallowed by another cell. And in exchange for having a nice, warm, comfortable place to live inside the the cell, almost like, I guess, Jonah swallowing, getting swallowed by the whale, the bacteria said, look, if you let me stay here and give me something to eat, I'll I'll pay you uh, in the form of uh, making ATP. I'll, I'll give you the currency. So mitochondria are actually engulfed bacteria. And there's all sorts of important implications on why that is. And if we want to get really nerdy, we can go into how mitochondria talk to their bacterial sisters in the gut. But the mitochondria produce ATP by taking the carbon atoms that we ingest and oxygen and some hydrogen atoms and basically run them down a a gauntlet called the electron transport chain. And the electron transport chain basically energizes electrons and stuffs protons where they don't want to be. And long story short, everybody's trying to get out of this electron transport chain. And at the last second, Protons push through a revolving door to get out, and in the process of going through that revolving door, the revolving door, almost like water going over a water wheel, generates ATP. This was so complicated that when it was first proposed by Dr. Peter Mitchell in 1961, it was not accepted as how this happened until 1978. In fact, Dr. Mitchell was uh, just laughed at uh, worse that his idea of how this happened could possibly be true. And, you know, when he got the Nobel Prize, I guess things got better. But, yeah. (laughs) So there you go. What did they think was happening before that? Oh, we can get really nerdy if you want. So chemists, I really hated organic chemistry. I like physics a whole lot more. Because physics, you kind of get to fudge. But in organic chemistry, organic chemists are exact. Uh, 
you basically, you know, have, okay, two plus two equals four, and there's no way that two plus two can equal three or two plus two can equal five. And when they started to look at for instance, the number of carbon atoms that were being eventually turned into ATP, tons and tons of tons of researchers, most of who got the Nobel Prize, like Dr. Krebs, Hans Krebs, Dr. Veach, kept coming up with a different number of ATP molecules when they plugged in carbon atoms into mitochondria. And that just drove chemists nuts because, wait a minute, you're doing the experiment wrong because you only get 32 molecules of ATP out of this you know, thing you ate, and I got 34, and this other guy got 30, and everybody's wrong. You're doing the experiment wrong. And it was actually Peter Mitchell that said, I figured out why everybody's answer is wrong, and it has to do with this isn't a perfect system. And these are living organisms. They're actually bacteria that have been swallowed, and they're they're producing energy in their own way. And everybody said, don't be ridiculous. Energy is energy. And so that's why he was ridiculed for so many years, and he was right. Oh, wow. So is it sort of like they wanted it to be just at the dollar system, but really there's exchange rates and there's all different currencies? Yeah. What, what they, uh, you know, they didn't understand is that this process of basically coupling the amount of carbon atoms and oxygen atoms to produce ATP is actually not a perfect one-to-one coupling. And it was the discovery of the first mitochondrial uncoupling protein that, that finally people said, son of a gun, you know, Peter Mitchell was right. He thought that this is what was going on. You know, the guy's a genius. Give him a Nobel Prize. <laughs> so the cells that don't have mitochondria, like red blood cells... Is it just red blood cells? Yeah, primarily it's just red blood cells. There's a few other cells that don't. For instance, your cornea doesn't have any mitochondria in general. So they use just fermentation, glycolysis, to do the job. And, you know, we could get really nerdy and talk about cancer cells. I was going to say like cancer. Yeah, so cancer cells. So one of the things that your listeners probably know about is the Warburg effect. And Otto Warburg, who also got the Nobel Prize for medicine, he was one of the first people to postulate the electron transport chain and figure out some of the pieces of it. But Warburg is most known for the Warburg effect. And that he, he thought, well, he thought he knew that cancer cells choose not to do what's called oxidative phosphorylation, using oxygen to create ATP, which is remarkably efficient, but instead choose to use glycolysis or fermentation to produce ATP, which is incredibly wasteful and inefficient. And he thought back in the 1920s and 30s that cancer cells had a defect in their mitochondria that they were unable 
to use oxidative phosphorylation to make ATP. Subsequently, we, we learned that he was mistaken about that. We now know that cancer cells choose to use fermentation to make ATP, even though they could perfectly use oxidative phosphorylation and use the electron transport chain, but they choose not to. And that's a whole nother wonderful ball of wax to go down. For listeners, I'll put a link in the show notes. I recently had on Dr. Jason Fung for the cancer code. And that's when I first learned about that, about the choosing blew my mind. There's, there's just so much there. But so going back to the mitochondria, one of the things you talk about in the book is how the mitochondria actually have their own DNA and the the importance of that and how we actually inherit it from our mother. What are the implications with all of that? Like, why does that matter in us? I had a mother. Thank you, mom. I have a wife and two female children. I have mostly female dogs. I'm very empowered by the female side of the family. And you guys should know that, uh, and you suspect that the males are basically drones, and that's basically all we're good for. You contribute, the, the mitochondria has its own DNA, its bacterial DNA, and that has two really exciting implications. Number one, the mitochondria can reproduce and divide and make more mitochondria independent of the cell it's living in, dividing. So that let's suppose, and hopefully we'll get into this, you want or need to make more mitochondria in an individual cell, you don't have to wait for the cell to divide. You can stimulate the mitochondria to make more of itself, make lots more little mitochondria, and it's called mitogenesis. And the implications for that are, number, are really profound. So that's number one. Number two, you only inherit your mitochondrial DNA from your mother. Uh, male contributes no mitochondrial DNA. And interestingly enough, the mother contributes the initial microbiome, or the holobiome, as I like to call it, to the baby. And there's, I think, very good, at least, theory that because the initial microbiome is maternal, that the maternal microbiome talks to the maternally derived mitochondria, which after all are ancient bacteria. And so like sisters, they're constantly talking to each other. And it's this talk that actually forms quite a big piece of the energy paradox and its implications. And not to bore your readers, but Usually pre-COVID every year, I present at the World Congress of Microbiota in, in Paris. And the organizer of that meeting years ago, eh, not years ago, maybe eight years ago, I was talking to him. He says, you know, the, the microbiome talks to the mitochondria. And I said, well, you know, I believe that, but why haven't we discovered the language of this talk. And he says, well, we will. It's their text messages. I know they exist and we'll discover it. And part of the excitement in the energy paradox is that this language, the talk between the microbiome and the mitochondria has been discovered. And it's 
postbiotics. And maybe we'll take a breath there and let that sink in because postbiotics is the communication system, what's called the trans-kingdom language where our microbiome talks to our mitochondria and to our DNA. Whoa. So much there. I want to dive deep into that. I have a few more lingering questions to clarify the picture of the mitochondria still. Okay. This is a super random question, but so with the implications of inheriting the mitochondria DNA from the mom, as far as that actual DNA, does that determine, because you talk in the book about how like nobody is technically carbon tolerant. I mean, obviously you talk about things like metabolic flexibility with burning carbs versus fat versus ketones. Do the mitochondria have a genetic preference to burn carbs versus fat versus ketones, or is it really all epigenetics? Mitochondria could care less what fuel you give them. We have to remember that our great-grandparents, they ate food whole. And there was no such thing as, as processed food. And I use examples in the book. Let's, let's suppose we have a piece of salmon and some spinach or asparagus and some olive oil that we poured on top of it. What normally happens in digestion is carbohydrates, as a general rule, are broken down first into simple sugars, glucose or fructose or lactose, and then absorb. And those get transported to the mitochondria first for processing into energy. Second, that piece of salmon, which has protein and also some fat in it, it takes a long time to break down protein into amino acids that can be absorbed. And so protein actually arrives second into the mitochondrial processing arena. And by then, quite frankly, most of the carbohydrates have been gone. So protein arrives next in the form of amino acids. Finally, most fats are absorbed uh, not directly through the wall of intestine, but they have to ride on chylomicrons. And the chylomicrons don't go into the bloodstream. They go into the lymph system. And so they get sloshed around in the lymph system and eventually enter the bloodstream up near the top of the heart in the vena cava. And then, and only then, do what they arrive for processing. So there would be a normal order for processing to mitochondria. But that all changed beginning actually a little over 100 years ago with the Kellogg's Corn Flake Company. And fun fact, Kellogg's Corn Flakes were advertised as the first fully pre-digested meal. Now, you think about that and you go, wow, how great. I don't have to do any work of digestion. Isn't that super? Little did we know that that was the start of the beginning of the assault on our mitochondria. So now, you know, most food that sadly we eat is processed or ultra processed. And companies have figured out how to break large starch molecules into individual sugar molecules, how to break large proteins into individual amino acids. Look at your bar and say, oh, protein isolates. Hmm. 
and break fat molecules into little tiny fats that can instantaneously all be absorbed very high in your small intestine. And like I talk about in the book, all of a sudden we have rush hour traffic coming into our mitochondria. And the mitochondria has to use slightly different methods for making energy out of all three of these different sources, but never would have had the problem of trying to do all three, three things at once. And what we literally have is mitochondrial gridlock. And that gridlock starts early in the morning with our first meal, and I take people through the day's events, and rush hour traffic is literally happening, oh, 16 hours a day. And no wonder we have no energy because we literally have ground to a halt, as anyone who lives in the LA area knows. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th Annual Biohacking Conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the U.S. is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives, dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. 
I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. So you're just speaking about the the order of fuel processing and how it would hit the mitochondria normally. I'm assuming that's if you ate a mixed meal containing all of those macros. Correct. So and maybe this is getting too granular, but if you were to eat the macros over, so like for me, for example, I tend to practice a one meal day type situation and I usually eat over around four hours, but I kind of segment my macros. So I I eat a lot of protein first, and then I actually eat a lot of fruit, which I know you're not a huge fan of, but I'm just wondering like the actual timeline of like a mixed meal compared to if you did sort of segment it, do you think that that affects the timeline of how these different macros are hitting the mitochondria? Yeah. And actually, if you notice, it's actually part of my program. In actually all my books, I've mused over the fact that there are a lot of diets that I call mono diets, where they tend to use one of the macronutrients as the mainstay of the diet. And whether that's the Duke rice diet, where you basically only eat rice, whether that's a carnivore diet, where you basically primarily eat protein, maybe there's some fat involved, or a keto diet where 80% of the traditional keto diet is is fat. Well, interestingly enough, all of these mono diets work and they work well. The Duke Rice diet gets rid of diabetes. The Atkins diet gets rid of diabetes. The carnivore diet gets rid of diabetes. The keto diet gets rid of diabetes. And, you know, people spend, you know, wars, their entire careers denigrating somebody else's diet with the, but the fact is they all work. So you're allowing in general mitochondria to have one fuel to process. And as long as you give them one fuel to process, they do extremely well with that. And they become very good at doing that particular thing. Now, the problem with most mono diets, unless you develop a religious fervor about that diet, is that you eventually give it up. And there's lots of reasons for that. I like the uh, idea from eat like the animals that we do have sensors for protein, we do have sensors for carbohydrates, and we do have sensors for fats. And eventually those sensors will override our willpower to seek out the other macros that you're cutting out of your diet. And it's very nicely described on how that happens. But, and that's why in general mono diets fail. The amount of excitement I got when I read the mono diet section, I 
I was so excited because it's a concept I'd been musing over for years. I just, from my own experience, I had realized that when you're in a mono diet situation, it's pretty hard to experience an overwhelm of energy toxicity or even fat gain in that situation, even with apparent calorie overconsumption. Like the first crazy diet experiment, I well, not the first, but <laughs> one of the first ones, and I'm not proud of this and I'm not suggesting it, but I basically realized that if you ate just protein and alcohol, like wine, <laughs> there wasn't really a pathway for fat storage from that. And I was like, this is an epic weight loss diet, not advocating it, but. Well, believe it or not, that was the drinking man's diet. I, I saw that recently. <laughs> I was like, yes. <laughs> Yeah, from Robert Samuelson. That that diet in the 1960s sold two and a half million copies. He was labeled by Harvard nutritionists as a mass murderer. And he and it was called the drinking man's diet. And uh, he says, hey, you know, steak and martinis and go for it. And he actually hilariously lived until 98 years of age on the drinking man's diet. And it was actually his diet. That is success that prompted Atkins to write uh, Dr. Atkins' Diet Revolution. It's crazy that it's not more well-known because I read that and I, I was like, I have never heard of the drinking man's diet. Two and a half million copies. Wow. It's crazy. So needless to say, I'm, I'm very much on board with this mono diet concept. And listeners, you're just going to have to get the energy paradox because it's got everything that you need to know for the specifics of how to actually implement all of this. Because like Dr. Gundry just said, he's he's not advocating mono diet all the time, but he has a very nuanced way of integrating it into the diet, which is honestly just brilliant. One last question about the mitochondria, and I'm not sure if you know the answer to this, but are you familiar with the Inuit as far as how they have like a genetic predisposition to not create ketones, I think? They, they don't create ketones very well. And interestingly enough, uh, surprisingly, hibernating bears don't create ketones. So surprise, surprise. Is that something that would be genetic information in the mitochondria or would that be somewhere else? Well, we we can, and I I touch on ketosis in in this book. Let's just say that the current, concepts of how ketones work and how a ketogenic diet works. And I've, I write about a ketogenic diet in all my books. The current concepts, I think, are probably 180 degrees wrong, as most people conceive of them, but that's probably a story for another day. We'll leave that teaser out there. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I was just wondering with that, if if it was in the mitochondria, like would that mean that and this is just not even probably worth discussing, but would that mean that people like the Inuit, if you were Inuit, but your mom was not Inuit, would you not inherit that genetic ketone adaptation? Yeah, you probably, yeah, you'd probably get that from your mother rather than from your father. That's crazy. So does that also imply that, especially with inheriting the microbiome and the mitochondria, that the health of a person from day one, from birth, is largely influenced by the mother more than the, the father? 
Yeah. I mean, there's there's clearly epigenetic changes that have been shown to occur because of even what the father was eating. So the father's not just, uh, you know, merely standing by as a sperm donor. His chromosomes are epigenetically changed by the foods he eats. And that's what's actually fascinating. The, the dad can screw things up. Uh, just by eating the wrong way for his before the kid even you know is made and it's it's frightening how much epigenetics is really what drives almost everything rather than genetics i guess it's frightening and exciting because you're you're not genetically destined but you can be set up for great success and it could just go all wrong or you could be the opposite so there's a lot of potential. So going back to these postbiotics that you teased, so you dive deep into the role of the gut microbiome and it's so thrilling and so fascinating. Like you said, that we now understand a little bit more about how the microbiome is communicating to us. And um, I think a lot of people, because a lot of my audience is very familiar with microbiome and fiber and all of that, and even things like I think butyrate, but you go into something I was not really familiar with I was familiar with gases as a byproduct of the microbiome, mostly as being a negative, like with methane slowing down intestinal transit time. But it blew my mind learning about hydrogen, hydrogen sulfide, methane, and actually their very vital, important role in communicating with the entirety of our bodies. Would you like to <laughs> tell listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I actually got interested in this when I was writing The Longevity Paradox. And I've been fascinated through the years with the naked mole rat. And those of your listeners who don't know them, the naked mole rat uh, lives in, almost in a ant-like colony, beehive-like colony in, in the Sahara Desert in tunnels. And they have a queen, but they're rodents and they live 20 to 30 times longer than any other rodent. Uh, naked mole rats can live literally 20, 30, 40 years, as opposed to a normal rat that has a lifespan of about two years. So they, they fascinated longevity researchers going, well, how do they do this? In fact, for most of my career at Loma Linda University, I had a huge psychedelic purple poster of a giant naked mole rat in my office from the San Diego Zoo. And people would come in, you know, a famous heart surgeon and say, why, why, why is there a naked mole rat as your only picture in here? I said, oh, no, just a fetish. So anyhow, so naked mole rats eat tubers and eat mushrooms and roots. And one of the things that fascinated me about naked mole rats was that they produce a lot of hydrogen sulfide gas. And getting really back to basics, most people think life forms started at hydrogen sulfide vents deep in the ocean in hot hydrogen sulfide vents. And rather than being an oxygen species, we lived on hydrogen sulfide. And it turns out that mitochondria are really good at using hydrogen sulfide to produce energy and actually to repair themselves. So I knew that this happened in naked mole rats. And so I said, oh, this is so cool. This is why they live so long. It's because they, they're making all this hydrogen sulfide. And humans, 
make hydrogen sulfide. That's the rotten egg smell. And I'll bet you I can find evidence that hydrogen sulfide gas in naked mole rats in the blood and hydrogen sulfide gas in humans is very high. And that'll prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that, you know, we and naked mole rats are long-lived animals because we use hydrogen sulfide. Lo and behold, it turns out there is data and naked mole rats in humans have the lowest amount of dissolved hydrogen sulfide in our blood compared to any other animal. And initially I was crestfallen and I said, ah, so much for that smart idea. But then I went, wait a minute, there's no hydrogen sulfide gas in their blood and in our blood because we're using it. And of course it wouldn't be there. And so it turns out that these gases are now called gasotransmitters or gasomessengers. And it's literally how our gut microbiome talks to our mitochondria, tells our mitochondria what to do, repairs our mitochondria in the case of hydrogen sulfide, and our mitochondria can actually use hydrogen sulfide gas. Same with hydrogen gas. And the story of hydrogen is just unbelievably almost Star Wars spooky. And if, if you want, we can talk about the Parkinson study, which is really cool. I would love to talk about the Parkinson study. <laughs> so Japanese researchers looked at the microbiome, people with Parkinson's versus normal people. And lo and behold, they found that the microbiome of people with Parkinson's don't produce hydrogen gas. And hydrogen gas is the flammable gas that the Hindenburg was made of. And the normal people had hydrogen gas producing bacteria. So they said, huh, what would happen if we gave hydrogen water, which is literally water that has hydrogen dissolved in it. And I happen to make a product, the Gundry MD H2 Restore, which does that. But they gave the Parkinson's patients hydrogen water, and lo and behold, their symptoms improved. And you can actually show how that happens at the level of the mitochondria with hydrogen being an incredible, important proton donor in making ATP and salvaging mitochondria. And lo and behold, one of the best places to get hydrogen is to have your bacteria make it for you. And it's like, whoa, what a sophisticated system. Who knew that farting is good for you? And so in the book, I tell, come on, everybody, let's step on the gas. I love it. So speaking of hydrogen, so for the past two months or so, I've been drinking deuterium-depleted water. Do you have thoughts on deuterium versus protium with hydrogen? Yeah, I've asked, been asked this question before. I found that that's really not way up there on my list of things to worry about. I'd much rather have my bacteria make some hydrogen for me, or if not, drink my hydrogen water every day. A lot easier to do. I'm super grateful that the company is sending me the water, but it's not a very accessible, like affordable route <laughs> for people to go. So other animals... You said humans and naked mole rats, we have less hydrogen sulfide because we're using it. So in other animals, if they have hydrogen sulfide in their bloodstream, will it just kind of gunk up? Like it won't be used? Well, interestingly enough, you actually you have to have the, the basic 
building blocks for hydrogen sulfide. And those are, in general, the sulfurous vegetables. So the cruciferous vegetables, a lot of, for instance, mushrooms have uh, some really good sources of sulfur. And it probably is one of the reasons that cruciferous vegetables in general or other sulfur-containing compounds, and quite frankly, animal meats have a lot of sulfur. You can generate hydrogen sulfide, and it may be that that's one of the reasons that humans are incredibly long-lived is because of our hydrogen sulfide gas production. This is so fascinating. Do you know, is there any correlation between the perception of experience gas in your bowels compared to the actual levels in the bloodstream? Are those correlated? Well, so hydrogen gas is the smallest molecule there is. And so it's instantly diffusible through your bowel wall. Although, uh, fun fact in Boy Scouts uh, back in the good old days, Boy Scouts on camping trips tended to eat a lot of beans. And we would, in the dark, take out our Bic lighters and we would fart and light our farts. And we would get this phenomenal blue flame and that was hydrogen gas. Fun fact, probably shouldn't have shared that, but that's what Boy Scouts do. (laughs) I read that in the book. I was like, wait, you can do that? (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's actually really funny. (laughs) Amaze your friends. It's just the hydrogen sulfide that lights on fire or... No, it's hydrogen. Hydrogen. Oh, it's the hydrogen. Yeah, it's the Hindenburg. So, I mean, you can, the hydrogen sulfide won't light and neither will the methane. Oh my goodness. Okay, this is crazy. So also in this world of energy generation, there's this idea that, this is tying into the gut and everything that's going on. A lot of people feel like they experience leaky gut or that their gut is damaged, that their microbiome is off. Something that has haunted me for a long time is, and you talk about this in the book, is just how fast the gut wall actually regenerates and also how fast the microbiome changes. Why is it that if it does happen on such a fast timeline that it can seemingly take years or months or years to make changes? Great question. Back when I first started doing this, 20 odd years ago, I was pretty naive and I thought that we could repair the gut wall in in a couple of weeks. Uh, And most people, lo and behold, people with an autoimmune disease in general, it may take us three months, six months, nine months, a year to repair the gut. I've also found, sadly, particularly in people with autoimmune disease, that any cheats usually almost put us back to square one in trying to, you know, do the repair work, which is sad, but true. So that's number one. Number two, and I talk a lot about this in the book, in in the seven deadly energy disruptors, that we're we're constantly battling an uphill battle to have a normal microbiome. Most of us have taken antibiotics or given antibiotics for, you know, a sore throat, a runny nose, a scratchy throat, and a urinary tract infection, for instance, without realizing that that could decimate this 
dense tropical rainforest for up to two years after you know a single round of antibiotics. We also feed the animals we eat antibiotics. And sadly, because of a loophole from the FDA, if you have uh, 100,000 chickens in a warehouse and the veterinarian who is in the employee of the big food company thinks there is one chicken that might be sick in those 100,000 chicken, then he's allowed to give antibiotics to the entire flock and you don't have to declare it. So you can still say it's, you know, antibiotic free. It's a wonderful loophole. In fact, there have been tests that I talk about in the book that up to 60% of these chickens tested are positive for antibiotic residue. The third thing, which I think is probably the, the saddest thing, is the, the widespread use of glyphosate and Roundup in almost all of our food supply, including since you have a red wine glass on your cover, it's in most California wines. So glyphosate is was patented as an antibiotic, and it was not patented as a weed killer. And it actually interferes with bacterial replication just as it interferes with plant replication. So glyphosate in and of itself it changes our microbiome, and glyphosate in and of itself can actually cause leaky gut. And glyphosate may be one of the big troublemakers in terms of us sensing our adrenal hormones. And I go into that in the book on how that can happen. So glyphosate's everywhere now. People don't realize that not glyphosate got associated with GMO, but now glyphosate, Roundup, is sprayed on almost all conventional crops, almost all wheat, corn, oats, soybeans, canola, to desiccate it. That means kill it and dry it because, quite frankly, it's much easier to harvest a crop if it's dry rather than wet. You actually save a lot of money. So now all these crops are sprayed. Now, they don't wash the Roundup off of this. So it not only goes into our cereals, into our energy bars, into our wine, but these same grains are fed to our animals. And so we get a double dose of glyphosate. So every time we eat these things, and several of our new healthy plant-based meats test positive for glyphosate. And why I wouldn't want a glyphosate burger is a little beyond my comprehension. I'm glad you addressed that. I, I asked for questions for you, and one of the questions I got was they wanted to know your thoughts on new vegan products like the Beyond Burger and Possible Burger and things like that. Yeah, and speaking of the glyphosate, I actually will only pretty much drink organic wine from Europe because of the glyphosate specifically and how it interacts with glycine and everything is just really, really, really terrible. So it seems like in theory, you'd be able to heal your leaky gut and microbiome really fast, but in actuality and practicality, it can be a lot slower for a lot of people. Yeah. And the other thing, so many of us have a vitamin D deficiency and vitamin D is essential to activate the stem cells in the wall of our gut to divide and fill in the missing gaps. And that's why when I see 
patients with autoimmune disease, one of the striking features is that most of them have, have a low vitamin D. And vitamin D is really one of the missing links in repairing your, your gut. How do you feel about, especially if you live in a, a location or during a season when there's not a lot of sunlight, very short, minute UVB tanning bed exposure for vitamin D production? Well, even at maximum sun exposure, like my buddy Joseph McCullough, you know, he, we joke that he walks on the beach for an hour and a half uh, every day in his Speedo in Florida, and he can only get his vitamin D level up to 60 to 70. And all of my patients, I got to have them from 100 to 150 nanograms per milliliter. I've been running my vitamin D greater than 120 for the last 21 years, and I'm not dead yet. So you recommend supplemental vitamin D for that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Almost everybody's got to supplement with vitamin D2, D3 and take some K2 with it. Okay. Perfect. I do that daily. Actually, on this show, I think the episode that aired last week was actually with Dr. Mercola about EMFs, which you talk about in your book as well. So something fascinating you talk about in the book as well is the Hudsa and this fascinating paradox, to use one of your words, about how they they actually burn less energy per day than we do. Yeah, they actually, it's a fascinating study. I actually had these researchers on my podcast recently there from Duke. They want to study the Hadzas, which are one of the last, you know, surviving true hunter-gatherers in Tanzania. And these are very fit individuals, very lean individuals. The men walk, oh, eight to 10 miles a day hunting with bows and arrows. And the women walk three to five miles every day, gathering berries and digging up tubers. And they're very active and they're very healthy. And so the supposition, they wanted to compare the energy burned by these very active people to the energy burned in desk workers. And their supposition was that the Hadzas are so skinny and so healthy because they're obviously burning lots of energy and the desk workers are obviously not burning any energy and that's why they're so fat and dumpy and sick. And lo and behold, they found that the amount of energy being burned was identical between the Hadzas and the desk workers. And whenever we in research have a hypothesis that doesn't work out the way we want, we usually have to say, okay, we were wrong so much for that hypothesis. And that's okay. We like to prove ourselves wrong. Well, these guys said, no, this is really interesting because what this means is that all human beings have the exact same energy expenditure and it's fixed. And that's the conclusion. And when I read that article a few years ago, I went, wait a minute, that does not pass the sniff test. So, okay. So they are burning equal amounts of energy. Where the heck is all that extra energy going in the desk workers. And that gets us to the point that the vast majority of us have leaky gut. And Hippocrates was right. All disease begins in the gut. 80% of our immune system, all of our white blood cells, line our gut or down in our abdomen because that's where mischief comes across. And war occurs as our immune system attacks these foreign proteins 
attacks these bacterial particles. And so there's literally an ongoing war, and that war is inflammation. And as anyone who's ever you know, gone to war or know about wars, troops require huge amounts of supplies. Producing inflammation is incredibly energy costly. And so these desk workers were burning up with the fire of inflammation, like I talk about. And that energy was being diverted from their muscles, from their brain, to you know, feed and fuel the troops on the front line. And so it's no wonder that most of us are tired and fatigued because so much of our energy is being diverted to inflammation. And that explains why the Hadzas were using their energy to walk and you know, be active, and the desk workers were using their energy to fight a fire. This is so, so fascinating because basically with the inflammation, because you think, okay, if we're a desk worker and we're burning all of these calories, how are we not losing weight? But it's the energy is going towards inflammatory processes, not, you know, not fat burning per se. I've been haunted by two things for quite a long time, two words, (laughs) inflammation and LPS. I often say that they're the bane of my existence and I work with... (laughs) I work with my therapist. She'll, she'll be like, Melanie, everything is not inflammation. And I'm like, but it is. <laughs> but in any case, with the inflammation that people experience, so this ties into the inflammation and the, the overwhelm on the mitochondria, the burning of the energy and this whole inflammatory state is burning energy or using energy always inflammatory. So in the inflammatory process, like we just talked about of sickness or viruses or attacking things, like is compared to just burning energy in the cells, is that inflammatory as well? Is there such a thing as clean burning energy? People often say with keto diets that it's clean burning energy. Like what is that? Is there clean burning energy? If there is, I want it. Uh, No, I get such a kick out of uh, hearing people say that that ketones are, uh, you know, clean fuel and that glucose is dirty fuel. And I think uh, Hans Krebs and Dr. Veach uh, would would roll over in their graves if, if anyone, you know, ascribed ketones as a clean burning fuel, just to put that to rest. Even at full ketosis, work by Dr. Owens out of Harvard showed that only 30% of our energy needs can be met by using ketones. 70% of our energy needs are met by using free fatty acids or glucose, not ketones. So please, folks, let's just, please just put that to rest. And don't worry, I'm, I'm going to put it to rest soon. Hi, friends. Okay, so I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near-infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near-infrared for so long. And at the same time, during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. 
So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, It was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN, in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time, that's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. 
Hi, friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold control. Contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee and use the coupon code MELANIEAVALON to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit. But sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. Hi friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. 
That's right. I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands. And it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous and they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. Follow-up question to that. So free fatty acids overwhelming the mitochondria with fuels. So we talked about in the beginning of this conversation, the the mitochondria getting overwhelmed with energy from a meal. So overwhelm. I was wondering, so say you're in the fasted state and you have really high free fatty acid levels in the bloodstream. Can those liberated free fatty acids then overwhelm the mitochondria or is it only exogenous fuel coming in compared to endogenous? So that's a great question. So one of the things I talk about in the book is that about 80% of Americans, Westerners, soon the world, have elevated insulin levels, have insulin resistance. And since we're kind of talking about ketogenic diet, normally after about 12 hours of not eating, Uh, we begin to mobilize free fatty acids from our fat stores. And they're mobilized, and this is all in the book, folks. Uh, They're mobilized with an enzyme called hormone-sensitive lipase. 
And hormone-sensitive lipase is sensitive to a hormone called insulin. And we're a beautiful design. So if we've eaten, insulin rises, and insulin takes the sugars and proteins out of our blood and puts it into our muscles or or our fat cells. And then normally insulin would fall. And as insulin falls, then hormone-sensitive lipase, which is suppressed by insulin, becomes activated, and that releases free fatty acids from our fat cells. Free fatty acids, in turn, among other places, go to the liver, where they stimulate or convert into ketone bodies. And ketone bodies cannot be used by the liver. And I really enjoy reading some of the ketone books that ketones are your the liver's favorite fuel. Sorry, folks, the liver can't use ketones. Anyhow, if your insulin level is elevated, you cannot liberate fat from your fat cells because hormone-sensitive lipase is suppressed. So the vast majority of people who try to get into ketosis after, say, a 12-hour fast or try to do, you know, like my good friend Jason Fung does and go on a three- to five-day fast, fall flat on their faces because they can't get to the fat stores. And the book, my book, The Energy Paradox, teaches you how to slowly but surely drop your insulin level so you can go get to your fat cells and get your fat. Again, listeners, going to have to get the energy paradox because it's all in there for the plan for how to properly do that. Something I was dying to ask you about because you you talked about in the book, we can touch a little bit on fasting. You talk about an NIH study first in rhesus monkeys looking at calorie-restricted monkeys and this here it is, paradox or conundrum, where the monkeys on a diet that was seemingly, well, was more processed and higher in sugar and fat, I think, had more longevity benefits than the monkeys at another institution that were eating more of like a whole foods, fibrous type diet. And then a follow-up study that was sort of analyzing what was going on there. And it was looking at mice instead and doing a sort of similar setup. I read that section probably like five times. And I was wondering, (laughs) and then I went and read the actual studies and I just went down a lot of rabbit holes. With that, the takeaway from the mice study at least was that time-restricted eating in mice, they got benefits if it was in a time-restricted eating window. They didn't get as many benefits as if it was also calorie-restricted, but they still got the benefits. So I was wondering back with that original monkey study, do you still think it was the low protein aspect or what do you think was going on there with the monkeys? Because they weren't time-restricted, right? They were just... Oh yeah, no, no, they were time-restricted. Oh, they were. Okay. Both groups. So one was the University of Wisconsin study and the other one was the NIH, National Institutes of Aging. And they had, both of the groups had 65% of their calories were carbohydrates. They differed in that the UW group actually had a higher sugar content, simple sugars, sucrose, than the NIH group. The NIH group had a higher protein amount. Same number of calories. They were calorie-restricted by about 30% of calories. And interestingly, the uh, UW rhesus monkeys lived longer 
than their counterparts that followed a regular diet. The NIH group still had great health span, but they didn't have any additional longevity. And this was hotly debated for many years. It's still hotly debated. I came down on the side, well, it's because of the higher protein that they, they didn't live as long. And that kind of parallels the experience in most of the blue zones where a lower animal protein seems to be one of the deciding factors. So a wonderful researcher by the name of Dr. DeCabo, also at the NIH, said, let's settle the score with mice. Mice don't live very long. And so he says, you know, I think there's something we're missing here. Calorie-restricted animals eat all of their calories very quickly because they don't have much to eat and they're always hungry and they're always grouchy and the calorie-restricted humans are the same way. And so if you're only given, you know, so many calories, you're going to eat them really quickly. And DeCabo says, you know, maybe it isn't the fact that we're restricting calories severely. Maybe it's the fact that these guys eat their calories very quickly and then have to wait a very long time fasting until their next meal shows up the next day. Maybe it's the time-restricted eating that's having the beneficial effect. So he designed a study, and you do have to read this over and over again, my editor fought me. She said, oh, this is too complicated. And I said, no, 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 no. This is so important. I don't care how many times people have to read it. Here's the deal. So what they did is they gave these rats, they divided them into two groups. Three groups of rats got the University of Wisconsin meals. The three groups of rats got the NIH meals. One group of rats got to eat their meals 24 hours a day in each group. One group was calorie restricted by 25%, but they put their food out at three o'clock in the afternoon. Mice tend to eat at night. The third group got a full day's ration, but they put it out at three o'clock in the afternoon, like the calorie restricted guys. So they followed them. And lo and behold, the two groups that the food was put out at three o'clock in the afternoon. Didn't matter whether it was the relatively higher protein, didn't matter whether it was a relatively higher sugar. They all had metabolically metabolic flexibility. In other words, their mitochondria could turn on a dime between using glucose as a fuel and using free fatty acids as a fuel. Perfect. The animals that were calorie restricted or the animals that didn't have time-restricted eating, had no metabolically flex metabolic flexibility. They couldn't change. The animals that were calorie-restricted lived about 30% longer than the normal-fed animals. But the animals that got to eat their full meals but started at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, they still lived 11% longer than the regular animals, even though they ate the same amount of food. And that's because they ate their food up in about 10 to 12 hours so that they were actually fasting 12 to 14 hours, which is a really long time for a mouse. The calorie-restricted guys, they were eating their meals in one to two hours. You know, And so I think the amazing thing that DeCabo showed wasn't so much the time-restricted eating. It wasn't so much what they were eating. It was how long they were eating for. And conversely, 
the longer they weren't eating, the better they did. And the really exciting thing, which is at the end of the study, is the two groups that had time-restricted eating, they didn't have any amyloid formation in their tissues, and amyloid as in Alzheimer's. So what a powerful study. So you can basically, my folks say, don't say this, but it basically says you might be able to eat what you want as long as you don't eat it for a very long period of time every day. And that's the takeaway. Okay. I'm so happy right now because I read that and then I was thinking, oh, is it because with the monkeys? Yeah, that was what, so DeCabo basically showed, you know, you bunch of morons. Yes, calorie restriction helps, but maybe what we missed was the fact that when you're calorie restricted and your food is being put out, you don't go to the cafeteria to pick it up, you eat that food very quickly. And so it was the fasting period every 24 hours that was probably the big factor. So if we eat pre-digested Kellogg's really fast. It may not be as bad as we think it is, but you didn't hear me say that. And, and again, in the book, I said, no, this does not say that you can have a pound of M&Ms and you'll be fine as long as you don't eat anything else. That's not what I'm saying. I'm so happy to be having this conversation, though, because that was what I was getting from reading that, but I don't think it ever explicitly spelled it out completely. I was like, I have to ask him. And the the high sugar and high fat group in that study that I write in the book, all mice die, obviously, and the, the high sugar and high fat guys mostly died of liver cancer. So that's why you don't want your pound of M&Ms, okay? Noted. <laughs> Well, I want to be super respectful of your time. My audience will be so annoyed if I don't even ask you a very, very basic brief question. And it could be a whole episode topic on itself, but lectins, it's a long, huge topic. I'm just going to ask you one really basic question. And it's, did you actually do studies yourself on, like I said, I developed this app, Food Sense Guide, that has, it compares lectins and all these other compounds in food, 11 different compounds, histamines, glutamates, FODMAPs, all these different things. It's hard for me to find a lot of literature on testing lectins. I was wondering if you'd done testing yourself in your patients or what work you reference for how you came up with the plant paradox and everything. Well, first of all, Dr. Diamato of the blood type diet, that actually was a a lectin removal diet. He probably correctly assumed that you couldn't make a case for a lectin avoidance diet. So he decided to call it the blood type diet, which does have, to his credit, a little bit of interesting science behind it. We actually express lectin absorbing sugar molecules, not only on blood cells, which is how we type blood by introducing lectins, but also on the lining of our gut. And lectins are sticky plant proteins that are looking to stick to proteins on the wall of our gut, on the wall of our blood vessels, in our joint surfaces, between our nerves. And this has actually all been worked out. There's multiple books published on this. I actually just read an article yesterday that, believe it or not, the proteins in lentils, 7% of all the proteins in lentils are lectins. Imagine that. So a great deal of the plant defense system is devoted to lectins. 
you can detoxify lectins with a pressure cooker for the most part. You can't detoxify gluten, which is a lectin with a pressure cooker. Sorry about that. So, yeah, lectins have been incredibly well studied on, you know, where they are, how to detoxify them. Fermentation is a very useful way of detoxifying lectins. Bacteria enjoy eating lectins. There's even a bacteria that likes to eat gluten. So, and, you know, the plant paradox, the energy paradox talks about lectins. So you don't have to go back and read the plant paradox. It's all summarized in the energy paradox as well. Yeah, I had Dr. Paul Saladino on the show. We were talking about lectins and he was saying that animal products don't really contain lectins. Then I was reading a, I don't know if it was a study or an article. I don't know if I found the actual source study about it, but it was saying that dairy, for example, would have lectins because they served as a protective mechanism against, I think, like viruses and bacteria for the newborn. So lectins and animal products... So I can tell you that, sadly, I've learned from a number of my mischievous autoimmune patients that the expression, you are what you eat, is not so important as you are what the thing you're eating ate. And early on, I found people who, if you feed lectin-containing foods to, say, like a chicken, that you will have lectins in their flesh. And I really didn't want to believe that until a few of my autoimmune patients, when we took away their organic free-range chickens that had been fed organic corn and soybeans, when we took that away, that was when we finally uh, got rid of their autoimmune disease. And just recently, you know, we had a young lady who flared her rheumatoid arthritis and her, she had started getting chickens from a farmer who told her that his chickens were pastured and her rheumatoid arthritis, her pain flared and she couldn't believe it. And, you know, she figured something else was wrong. And I finally said, why don't you find out what he's feeding, you know, these pastured chickens? And it turns out that they were pastured, but he was supplementing them with wheat and corn and soybeans as part of their feed. And so when she stopped eating her pastured chicken, her rheumatoid markers went away and her pain went away within five days. It's insane. It's insane. So you are what you eat, but you are what the thing you're eating ate. Oh my goodness. Well, this has been absolutely amazing for listeners. Again, you've got to get the energy paradox. It goes deep into everything. I mean, I still have like 20 million pages of notes and things I want to ask you, but listeners will have to get the book to learn all of it. How can listeners best follow your work? Do you have another book in the works? Yeah, I'm almost putting the next book uh, to bed uh, very shortly. It was actually caused by things I learned in the energy paradox that didn't add up. And when things when things don't add up, I go down rabbit holes to find out why they don't add up. Just kind of like how when we started this conversation, it didn't add up. How different tests on mitochondria came up with different ATP productions. And we'll, we'll leave it as a teaser for that, but you'll find out why things don't add up in in uh, the keto diet. Oh my goodness. I'm so excited. (laughs) 
Yeah, so, you know, I have the Dr. Gundry podcast, and you can find me at drgundry.com. You can find my supplement food company, gundrymd.com. I've got two YouTube channels. Find me on Instagram, Twitter, uh, and hopefully most of you get an email from me every day um, bothering you. I love it. Well, hopefully you can come back for that new book when it comes out because, oh my goodness, that's really exciting. Last question I always ask every guest. It's really fast. It's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? Actually, I am grateful for all of my mentors who just gave me a little bit of themselves and a little bit of direction uh, when I needed it most. And I'm most grateful for my wife and my three dogs and my two daughters and their grandkids. So that's a lot to be grateful for. I love it. And it's my wife's birthday. Yay. Happy birthday. (laughs) That's wonderful. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Gundry. I am forever grateful for your work. I've been such a fan for so long. This conversation was everything I was hoping it would be and more. And I can't wait to see all of your future work. You're doing incredible things. Well, thanks, Melanie. And I hope we didn't go too deep into Nerdville today, but sometimes it's fun. It was fabulous. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day. Okay. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.